0: As we continue on our sermon series in the book of Psalm, I would encourage you to turn your Bible to Psalm 16. As we have been going through the Psalms, um, we continue on today in the writing of David. And if you haven't heard before the term that Christ is seen in the Psalms, he is written of And can be seen in God's word. This is one of those psalms today. It is some of David, but of a lot of Christ in what we will see. David expresses devotion to God. But later on, it is obvious that he also has a confidence in a resurrection. A resurrection that prevents corruption. And only that can apply to Christ. Both Peter and David would use this psalm in the book of Acts to explain the resurrection, that a body would not stay in corruption in the grave, but it would reveal and come to us and prevent eternal corruption. If you would, please follow along as I read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after the other gods shall multiply Because he is my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So so you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let my Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. David speaks of himself as a member of Christ, and so he speaks the language of all good Christians. Christians are united to Christ in this life by the death and resurrection of Christ Himself, died to the death, born again to new life. But it would be hard to understand that that even Peter, would excuse me, that David would even be part of that. But because he trusted in God, he was the same as Christians today. He trusted in the one that God would bring forward for that atoning sacrifice. Let's see what David says is the hope and the trust that he has in his God. David in Psalm 16 is professing his confidence in God. Confidence in God. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is not a new theme or statement that we have seen in the psalm. It goes back and starts in Psalm 2. The same language of refuge is being used as the place that David says He has safety, but there's more than that. I think there's a dwelling there that encompasses that time with God. He knows that the safety is there, but there's also more. Those who by faith commit themselves to the divine care and divine guidance of God will receive both. There's care and guidance, both coming to David. And it continues on. It can be no other because a faithful God would never leave one of his own. I think John Calvin had it right when he said, our safety both in life and in death depends entirely upon our being under the protection of God. If we are in God, if God is with us, who can be against us? We have not only our safety in this life but after this life we are rest assured 100% guarantee that this life will pale in comparison to what God holds for us in eternity. I said that in the, this psalm we see some of David but we also see many times some of Christ. And in studying this this psalm this week, I see so many commentators debating how much is David, how little is David, how much is Christ, how little is Christ. But he is, Christ is all through this psalm. And this first verse is nothing less than that. Christ shows his trust his refuge in God the Father. And I think it's most evident in the time that Jesus spent in prayer. Whether it was in Matthew 26 or John 17, in times of prayer, Jesus went before the Lord and said, Lord, not in my will, but yours. I trust in you. Lord, I know that you and I have that great relationship, that we are one. I want my disciples to know that and be part of this communion together that we have. Bring them in, Lord. Let them know that you are their refuge also. But I think this psalm also shows us by trust that devotion to God, there is devotion to God. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my God, I have no good apart from you. This is an example of a hyperbole. There are people in this room that have known me for 20 years. They know for me to use a word like that, I must have been doing some reading this week. I am not a wordsmith, although I have known some. I believe there are those individuals that I have known that if I have any time in conversation with them, they are going to use a word that I probably never heard before or know the meaning of. Two of them come to mind, my friend John and my friend Paul. And I think that maybe in the near future I will see that there might be another name added to that list. (laughs) But a hyperbole is language that describes something better or worse, kind of an exaggeration so that we really understand what it is. David is doing that in this verse. And actually, in the Psalms, he has done it two ways. He has done it to the good and he has done it to the lesser, to the worse. Let's look at the other one before we get to this one. I would say that this is the positive. Let's look at the negative. And that would be in Psalm 51, verse 4, where David said, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Did David really mean that Against God, has he only sinned in the situation where Nathan the prophet had come to him and said, what you have done with Bathsheba is wrong. And the situation was, he took another man's wife in an adulterous affair. He had that man killed to cover up what was going on. Did David only sin against God? Well, the rebellion against what God was the root of the sin. and his crime, injured people who belonged to God. And he transgressed social order, which is created by God. So in all that he did, all the sins that he committed were against God. But in the same way, in our text, in this verse, here David acknowledges God as Lord and ruler of all. And he says that no good shall be apart from God. Really? No good apart from God? Do you mean that David is saying that he will experience nothing in this life of any good? He will have no joy. Nothing will come about that ever brings pleasure that we would consider good? Or is he saying, I will never be able to do one thing That is a good act. That people would say, now that was nice. That was good. That was something that was beneficial. No. He can do nothing to profit the Almighty. We can do nothing to profit the Almighty. But when God is Lord of our life, we will see his grace in us in everything. No matter what there is, no matter what what comes about in our life, we see as a blessing from God. He is a giver of all that's good. This life and people in it would say, you know, that was a twist of fate. That was good fortune. That was bad luck. We say God's hand was upon it and God is good. It is all good in our life. And it comes to us by grace. Because of God's grace shown to us, we can also show affection to the people of God. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The, The saints are the elect of God, God's chosen people. It was then and it is now. It is with those that God has called to himself, that who is who David is speaking of. And he refers them to the excellent ones. God would look on, on them and he would see them as the delight that he has in life, the, the great, the mighty, the magnificent ones. That's how God sees them. But the world may see them as the poorest of all the world, the lowly, those that are are not much stature. So what is this uh, relationship between God and man? God is above us and happy without us, and whatever we do is all from him. He needs nothing from us. What what we do uh, to his own is pleasing to him. What we do to his own is pleasing to him. So our delight should be in love and service to his people. It's not to gain favor with God. But when we do kindness to his people, it delights him because they are his excellent So what should we use as an example? I say we should use Christ himself. Christ, when he was on this earth, came to the lonely, the meek, those that were in need, those that were in need of healing, and he showed compassion to them. He showed love, and we can do the same. Continue on in the work of Christ. And what is our reward? Should we look at it? There is a reward. If we're among God's people, it's not again to gain God's favor, but I believe that there is a reward. Think about it. Think about your own life and those that you hold dear. Those that you would go to in a time of trouble are probably those that have the same foundation in life that we do, Christians do, and that is God himself. God's word uses so many times the analogy of marriage, of two coming together and being one. But before this relationship can be right, this relationship has to be right. First, the relationship is with God and the individual, and then it goes out from there. And we do the same among God's people. We seek them out. We have our greatest joy. And if you don't think that that is true, think about the the times in life where you've been in a struggle, where you've had a child that is rebelling and is far from the Lord. Who can understand that more than your time that you spend with fellow believers? And you give them your heart and the burden that you have because of the situation they know and have the compassion of Christ that is then given to you and we can give to them. I think verse 3 is a positive example but I think also that, pos- uh, that verse 4 is the opposite of that. Is it is a negative. The elect lift up. But in verse 4, the wicked bring down with false worship. Those who trust in God are to have adherence to the true worship of God. I believe that verse 4 is a negative, but I want to use it in the positive and accent the true worship of God, not the negative of those that would seek after idols. But verse 4 says, The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of God will will not pour out or take their name on my lips. David tells of the gloom of the idolaters and their worship. Everything about it is so far from the true God. He speaks of it. We don't have to magnify it. But if you've been reading and following along along in the last week or so in our reading schedule of the Bible at Crossway, we've just finished 2 Chronicles. And so many of the kings who had the responsibility to lead their people by their example of worship to God brought them away to the false idols, to the high places, to worship that was not of the one true God. And what would come of that? Destruction. Bad time. Evil. This is what happens when there is false worship among idolaters. But it says, David says, that that sorrow will be multiplied Because of it, it will be compounded coming back to them. Because first, they're going to see the disappointment that comes from serving false gods. What can a piece of wood or stone or some other object help them in a time of trouble? What can come of worshiping such a thing? Nothing. So they will be disappointed in their gods themselves. But even past that, they will still have to face the judgment of the one true God because they have not surrendered their hearts and their worship to him. David will have no part of that worship. David knew what true worship was. Even this psalm that we were looking at has been said to be used as a hymn of praise to the one true God. He praised his Lord in a mighty way. He will delight in God and delight only in Him. I think this part of the psalm is another that we see as a reference to Christ. Because there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be an atoning work done. There has to be a shedding of blood Christ was that atonement, the true atonement for sin, the one and only that needed to be done. So, yes, I think that Christ is seen again. And last of David's expressions of devotion to God come in verses 5 through 7. His desire, his entire satisfaction in God, his entire satisfaction. I think this can be summarized in three ways. One each in verses 5, verse 6, and verse 7. In verse 5, life is a gift of God. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. Three quick metaphors right after each other. Symbols of something else. The portion When I first started looking at this and studying it, I thought that the emphasis should be on the portion. Is it large? Is it small? Or is it like what Paul would say, it doesn't matter what state I'm in, I will be content. Was it the contentment? But I really think it's more on the chosen portion. Who is doing the choosing? It is a chosen portion. I believe God's people have a portion that is chosen for them from the God that chose him. If he is the one that has chosen us, why should we worry about what he will choose for us in our portion? And the cup, symbolizing again how much bounty will we have Psalm 23 lists so many things. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes down and it goes down and it says the good things that God has given him. And it says, and my cup runs over. It cannot hold all that there is because God is the one that has filled it. And my lot. There again, as I was the individual trying to think of what was meant by the lot I thought about the TV show, those guys that are called the Pickers, that go around and look at all the different junk. I mean, at least that's how I see it as junk. But they say that there's some great worth in it. And they want to make a deal and they say, um, let's bring all this together, let's make a lot out of it, and I'll buy it all for X amount of dollars. Is that what God is talking about in the lot? No, I I, I don't think it is. I think it's more in the use of the word like Jesus was hanging on the cross. And how did they come about his clothes? They cast lots. A lot coming to them. And I think that it is explained so well in Proverbs 16.33 where it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's, Every decision is from the Lord. The flip of the coin may come about, but the decision of the coin is God's. Every decision in this life, the lot that comes to us, is handled by the Almighty God for our good and his glory. But not only do we see God has given secure but also pleasant life. Verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. One commentator said, Gracious persons, though they still covet more of God, never covet more than God. If we can understand that and put that perspective in our life, it takes the burden of the race for the most completely out of focus in our lives. I think so much comes into perspective then when we think of the study of desiring God. If we desire God, what is anything else? We need nothing else. And third. Trust in the learning from the God. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I think John Calvin's view of this is excellent. David confesses that it was entirely owing to the pure grace of God that he had come to possess so great a good and that he had been made a partaker of it by faith. Let us know that both these things proceed from the free possession of him by faith. Not only possess great good, but we are partakers in it also. The great good that comes from God, the rich blessings, the uh, the instruction that comes from his word, all is given to us through faith. But we cannot act on that or do anything with it unless God also leads us. That's how we become the partakers. Now in the final four verses of this psalm, David is carried by the spirit of prophecy. Far from consideration of himself and foretells of the glory of the Messiah. How can we be sure the prophecy of David is speaking of the Messiah? Because of what I said earlier. Peter and Paul both use this psalm in defense of a risen, uncorruptible Jesus Christ, especially Peter in his sermon after Pentecost. I believe that commentator W.S. Plumer is right when he wrote an interpretation of these four verses of the psalm which is inconsistent with Peter's inspired remarks upon them is of course erroneous and must not and must be given up in other words what David spoke up and spoke of in privacy Peter was an eyewitness to and that is the holy one would not see corruption The rest of our psalm, the Holy One, would not see corruption. I'd like us to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 910. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. I believe the explanation for this psalm is given by Peter In his message on the day of Pentecost. He explains exactly what David through prophecy meant. When he wrote those words. Follow along as I read starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. That tells us our audience for Peter's words. They were those men that had seen the power of the Holy Spirit come on men and when were able to hear and understand words in their own language. And the accusation was given that they must be drunk. There must be something going on that is far from God. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter, as we would say today, is getting in their face. In their grill. And he wants to tell them exactly. Who this individual that he's talking about is. He says it's Jesus of Nazareth. The one appointed by God. The one that did so many things right among you. That you men of lawlessness put to death. But you didn't put him to death by your own will. It was the desire and the purpose done by God. It was God's plan. You were part of that. So we know exactly the individual that Peter is speaking of, Jesus of Nazareth. God has raised him up, loosened the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is telling them, this man was dead No doubt about it. Our question last week in Sunday school. What do we say when somebody says, did Jesus really die? Jesus is dead. But Peter says, can the grave hold him? Look what he uses as part of his first defense. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Exactly, almost word for word, the scripture ending of Psalm 16. This is where Peter is putting his confidence in the inspired word of God written by Peter. The only thing that's lacking is the last part of the verse where it said, at your right hand is presence forevermore. But he goes on. He says, brothers, I may say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb, is with us to this day. We're talking about, did Jesus' body experience corruption? Did he stay in the grave? Was David in the psalm speaking of himself, or was he speaking of Jesus? Jesus. And what Peter just said is, I can take you to the grave of David because he died and he's still there. It's not him that he's talking about. So who is is he talking about? Going on in 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Remember when I said that David was part of the body of Christ? This tells us exactly the same thing. David didn't know how it would come about, what it would look like, but he had the promise from God himself that said one would come out of your line and would be savior of the world. But it also says something else, that that body did not face corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The same people that you're making fun of, Peter is saying, we were there, we saw him after he came out of the grave. Now we have two things to combine, combine together. We have actual witnesses, and we have prophetic word of God that says that the body of Christ will not stay in the tomb. What great assurance we have. How we see God working in his word, through his prophet David. So what we, should we think about today with that great piece of evidence, with that great reassurance? I think if we go on in God's word, in this account, it says that many found it to be true That this Jesus was raised from the dead and they believed they saw the sin in their own lives and they repented and they turned to Christ as their Lord and Savior today here among us I think this should do two things for two groups of individuals first of all for believers in Christ it should give us confidence it should give us boldness in the faith that we proclaim that Jesus Christ is alive and victorious over the grave and that gives us the assurance that we will spend an eternity with him when we trust in him as our atoning sacrifice for our sin. For those that have not had that happen in their individual lives here today, I say continue to seek the truth of God's word The power of converting hearts is not in a man's words, but in the power of God's word. What he has said, what he has revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, that atoning work. Continue to seek after God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray that as as we have looked to Christ this day, that we have the assurance of knowing that you do not lie, that you are a God of truth and can be trusted, that your Son, who was in the grave, had victory over it, that true worship of you Reveals that, Lord, in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray with our tongues, with our words, that we proclaim it boldly, that we use your word as evidence of fact that came about, that we serve a living and just and righteous God. I pray for those, Lord, that are still lost lost in their sin, lost from a heart that has been regenerated by you. I pray that you are merciful to them, that you allow us to continue to minister to them, proclaiming the truth of your word, Lord, for in it, and in it only, our hearts and lives changed. But allow us to be your disciples of that word. We thank you again that you have given us this time to see Christ in this psalm. And it's in Christ's name that I pray, amen.